0: Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today.
1: Good morning, Thrive at 20 podcast listeners. We're excited to be joined by Paul Struthos this morning. Paul Adore is uh, one of the equity partners and owners of LabTition, a uh, ophthalmic Distribution, supply, and pharmaceutical product company based in Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. I think I got all that right, Paul. It's a mouthful, but uh, it's early in the morning, and I'm not a morning person, so I probably screwed half
0: that up. But did I get any of that right? Yeah, it's close enough. I mean, it's uh, located in Oakville. Okay. And, uh, but you did get the uh, optician ophthalmic portion. We're a commercial partner for companies wanting to enter the Canadian market, mm-hmm. mostly, mostly in specialty eye care products and services. Yeah, and it's been
1: almost 20 years now, right? 17, if I count correctly?
0: Yeah, 17 years.
1: Wow, we'll have to have a big party when you get to 20. Any excuse for a party with Struthos boys is good in my books. <laughs> yeah. So you're there, your your brother's also involved in the business. Uh, a good friend of yours, Ray DeBay, well, a good mutual friend of ours is involved uh, a little bit in the business, but your hands are completely in the dough. So tell us a little bit about the business, Paul, and why you decided to leave the cozy confines of corporate life, and uh, and have your own gig with some with some partners.
0: Yeah, well, um, first of all, just uh, listen. Thanks for inviting me to be on this uh, series of discussions you're having. Um, Very impressive. I listened to some of the previous podcasts. Obviously, a very impressive group of people. I just feel honored to be part of the process here Um, also thanks for um, inspiring me to reflect a little bit on where I am personally and in business so it's been a really interesting exercise just saying okay if somebody would ask me a question about this how would I respond so thanks for that Um, as far as the the business goes you know we've been in 17 years and um, I decided to leave corporate uh, which was uh, Allergan um when i was 45 and i had just come back from the u.s just had gone through a divorce and actually um you and i had a conversation when i came back and that was kind of one of a turning point for me and that you asked me what my priorities were we did you know the wheel of life i don't know if you recall that oh yes i recall uh, that like you yeah. and i and
1: manny and a couple other people some mutual friends from our Oregon days were working on that together. And I even remember us doing a little yoga retreat for a day. So, yeah, yeah I, and I, I do recall the, the decision-making process for you was fun, but challenging at the time, right? You had a lot of options on the table and uh, you took the big step, right? To go uh, build your own, well, buy and, and expand a business that you had a lot of interest in. But why the choice at that time, Paul?
0: Well, I think it came back to that discussion we had because you asked me what my priorities were, and uh, I said, you know, my kids are my priorities at this point because I was going—I knew it was going to be a single dad—and then uh, you basically challenged me and said, you know, uh, from everything you're doing, all your behaviors, not indicate that that's the case. So I had a chance to go back and and really reflect on that, and I said, you know, I know I can't accept any more expats assignments, you know, although I did want to get to Europe at one point. I said, you know, I can't do that. Uh, They're going to need my position here as a stepping stone for somebody else that they're going to be grooming. So I had two choices. Either one is let somebody else control my destiny or, you know, control my own. And um, serendipitously at the same time, I was at a grocery store and bumped into the former owner of La who he and I had stayed in touch because he was uh, I was the chair of the ophthalmic sector of medic medic at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was the treasurer of medic. And so we interacted quite a bit, and in fact, when I was in the U.S., he would call me up and say, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this. I'm thinking of doing that. What are your thoughts?" And um, I just happened to bump into him at a grocery store, and he said, "Hey, why don't you uh, why don't you come work with me?" And um, you know, I reflected on that. And I said, "I don't really want to work for a husband-wife team because I I just couldn't compete with pillow Talk, right?" So, <laughs> yeah. so I came back after six months. I said, "Look, are you interested in?" and selling the business. And I saw the business as having a real good, strong base that would allow us to platform and grow from there. And uh, so then, you know, I called uh, my brother, Cleon, and he was uh, he was working for uh, uh, an intramed, which was a medical education company at the time. And, um, and then I called Ray, uh, my third partner, primarily to get his input on how you value a company and how do you know what you're paying for. And at that point, he kind of said, hey, why, why do you want to do this? He said, he said, do you want to do it for money or whatever? I said, no, you know what? I just want to build something. It's not about the money. And so he said, if that's the case, then, then would you like a third partner, more of a silent partner? And that's how it kind of all got, got uh, put together and negotiated for about two years. And then uh, we finally took the leap. So that was kind of the, the, uh, the sequence of events that happened there.
1: And did it immediately pay dividends, Paul, in the sense that you were able to um, have the right focus on on your family as you were negotiating and as you were making the transition? So, so did, did you feel the benefits immediately of, of being able to say, hey, I'm doing this because, you know, A, I want the challenge and the opportunity, but B, uh, rather than going to Europe and putting my family ties under pressure,
0: they're going to be right here in Southern Ontario. Well, it started in uh, the time that I was at uh, Allergan before jumping into this, because the Allergan was really a classy company. Um, they allowed me to, you know, when I when I came back to Canada, I, I basically had said, "Look, I've got my kids, I've got a commute. Uh, I'll be in by nine thirty, and I have to leave by three thirty-four, you know, to pick them up from whatever activities they had. Yeah. But the weeks, the weeks I don't have them, I'm, I'm willing to give you all and." It worked out just fine so that 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 was the the beginning of the uh, single dad experience if you want to call it and then um when i jumped into this business it was local my house was five minutes away um and i was controlling my own time so i can control my own you know schedule mostly uh setting up meetings when i needed to being able to, to you know uh go to a meeting then go to the kids events and come back so uh but it was tough it was a tough struggle it's not an easy tasks to do, particularly when you're heavily in debt, uh, high risk. Um, you know, in fact, I remember having a conversation when I left uh, out again, um, there was the president at the time that I announced that I was going to be leaving, and uh, he thought I was crazy. He said, you know, you're leaving all this money on the table with stock options and, you know, your your family and this, and it seems like heavy risk. And, and then later on, he, he said to me that um, uh, he wished he could do that move. So that was an interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet.
1: Yeah, but you know, Paul, your your point there a second ago about having the kids close to where you were working and living and being able to get to the events, get to the schools, get to the events in the evening. I I, I can relate to that because I think it's one of the things that this transition for me taught me too was as busy as. Having your own business is at least you could control the calendar much better than the corporate calendar and not miss those important events and be able to uh, not compromise the most important thing in your life. So Mm -hmm. good on you. And I know how extraordinarily busy it must have been for you to negotiate all of the details and then take over the business and realize there was a lot that you wanted to change. How did you prioritize the things that you could see? Because your experience and and your brother Cleon's and Ray's, I'm sure you could see that as much as there was a good foundation in the ophthalmic space, where labtition is today is almost unrecognizable compared to where it was, you know, almost 20 years ago when you first started kicking the tires with labetition. So it must have been a little daunting to think, well, I know what I want it to be to become. So I remember you having very clear vision of being able to take technology from outside of Canada, especially in eye care and bring it in. And here you are today doing exactly that in device, uh, even in the pharmaceutical environment and the OTC environment. So all of that ended up coming to fruition, but at the time it was a little distributing manufacturing center. So, you know, you must've looked at it and said, gosh, where do I start? It's like renovating a a house where you've got, you bought a foundation, and you look at it and go, okay I can see I can see the big picture here, but it's a lot different than what i've got so where what where Where did you start, and why I guess is my question
0: Well, it came back to um you know the eye care business is kind of unique in that the pace of the technological change is very quick, and you know again when you look at a practice uh, an ophthalmology practice an ophthalmology practice it's very capital intense you know you'll get um Different piece of equipment, diagnostic equipment that comes out all the time. You have different devices that are going to be used. Um, and that kind of was inspirational to me because saying, you know, I always wanted to be at the forefront of things. And I, we also realized that, um, Canada was a tough market to be in from a regulatory standpoint, from a pricing standpoint, from a lot of, a lot of the challenges there. But we basically sat back and said, look, we need to be able to get products that the big companies would not bring into the country because they're not big enough in terms of revenue and size, but that we felt could could meet a need in the Canadian marketplace for certain patients. And so we did focus on that. Um, It it was a daunting task. I mean, you know, to to say that you knew exactly where you're gonna go when you started is not the case at all. In fact, you're scrambling and you're you're thinking of making your payments, your loan payments. uh, I remember we had two loans. We had one from RBC and one from BDC. And the one from BDC, you know, that was um uh, 16%. So that's a big, a big nut. Um, and we didn't want, we wanted to maintain the equity in the in the business versus uh, get a lot of equity partners. So it was a daunting task. But eventually what happens is you you kind of formulate a vision and kind of see where the future is going, and we knew we wanted to be a platform or other companies coming into the marketplace. And we knew we had the expertise. So, you know, we basically bet on ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, Cleon uh, had pharmaceutical experience and retail experience and uh, managed care experience. Ray had experience from a previous business in, in uh, building a 3PL uh, business and a direct to consumer and patient uh, support programs. And, you know, I had my experience with surgical business and ophthalmics and, you know, the pharmaceutical side as well. And so we kind of said, okay, let you know you have to be a little bit opportunistic, but let's vet and get those specialty products that we think will serve a need. And we kind of stuck to that, and that's how we kind of built on the base.
1: How did you find them, Paul? I mean, it's an interesting idea in theory, and I'm sure listeners are thinking, "Well, that sounds like fun," but how do you actually find the products? Because I can imagine that it's one thing to go out to all the OEMs and the different uh, small shops and labs and worldwide who are tinkering in their basements in their garages or maybe in their corporate offices it's another thing to decide well which ones uh will have the kind of profile that fit our business and fit our model it must have been like it's like i can just imagine walking into a, a huge area with all these fruit trees and all kinds of different fruit on the trees and you got to figure out which one to go shake and then does that fruit fit your market so how how in heavens did you figure out the supply, demand and sort of match
0: question that uh, that you were up against? Well, it was, you know, we use the analogy. We say, you know, when we first started, we would be hunting for products. Yep. And then with time, we became the hunted, right? Um, so when we first started, literally, it was the relationships that we had with people in the industry. Um Uh, You know, guys like Jim Mazel, you know, uh, Mike Ball, um, you know, Chris Calcaterra, there was a number of people in the environment that once they heard that um, we'd gone to our own business, were referring people to us because they were sitting on boards or they were doing different products. And that's how it really started is based on relationships. We would go to every single meeting, go to every single booth and then kind of assess and say, okay, is this a product that may have value? Sometimes it was easily apparent. Sometimes it was not. Then, of course, we competed with other companies that were in our space, and um, you know, then we just proposed our value proposition and said, you know, we we always said that we would treat their brand as if it was ours. And you know, luckily for the great training I had out again, it was marketing focused first. So you know, we would do all the due diligence on the market size, you know, the market assessment, the the, the target audience, uh, the value proposition, the key messaging, the narrative. We would do all of that up front and then talk to the parent company, whoever they were, that uh, were the best partner for them. So at the beginning, we really pitched hard. And, you know, now we're at the point where we still do that. But a lot of people come to us and say, hey, we have this product and we've heard about you guys and we'd like you to explore that. So that's kind of how it it, it built up, Rob.
1: Yeah, and I can imagine looking back now over the almost 20 years, Paul, you see some of those previous relationships as being okay or good, and some as being extraordinary and very positive. What separates the best relationships in, in terms of their staying power and their profitability for that matter? Like, When you look back now, uh, I'm sure some of our listeners who are thinking about similar business models or maybe see that in their future would benefit from your your wisdom. How how do you know that a product and a company is going to be a good partner?
0: You know the the very first thing is your initial discussions, and I think trust is a big factor. Trust is a really big factor. Um, Do do you think you can work with the people? is their ego getting in the way of good judgment? Um, is is the product well founded? Look, nobody wants to admit their baby's ugly, you right. know. So everybody who has a product and is pitching a product thinks that's the best thing since sliced bread, and as we all do. If you're passionate about something, you are going to promote it. But the the, the first thing is trust. The second thing is, and a doctor once said that to me. He said Paul Paul Adore says, "What is the problem you are trying to solve?" And so if a product solves a problem, then it's going to be worth taking on. If it doesn't solve a problem, then you're just going to be wasting your time. So we, we use that litmus test, if you like, every time we look at a product. Um, then if we, we look at launching companies, so we did have a, a joint venture with a big French uh, uh, pharmaceutical company. And that one was based on a vision we had to get into the dry space. We kind of saw that, you know, we were in a surgical space and we saw uh, patients that were, their vision was great by all diagnostic uh, tests, yet they were unhappy. And a big, we found out by asking questions that their corneal surface was compromised. So we said, okay, why is that? And then, you know, the ophthalmologists say, well, because they have dry eyes. So then we, we started looking for products in that space. Where we wanted to do something unique. And not just provide a bunch of samples and hope somebody's going to pick it up at retail. So uh, we searched for a company. We found this company in France. they a family-owned business just like we were. They were massive. They're probably the second largest uptown company in, in Europe. But we hit it off with the ownership. And we, we signed a contract for a joint venture. We did that for five years. And we never looked at our contract again because it was that real strong element of trust.
1: I would think, too, the other thing you could parlay, Paul, was the very strong reputation that all of you, but particularly yourself, have with Canadian ophthalmologists and optometrists. Uh, They know you, you know them, and I'm sure you leverage that even early in the business, but certainly now. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, again, it was back to the... You know, when I was working with Allergan, it was the the trust factor. Um, you know, I always wanted to represent the company fairly, but I also wanted to represent um, the solution to the doctor in a fair way. Yeah. Um, I, I remember actually being in an OR one time. We were trained on uh, what's called the viscoelastic, which is you inject it in the eye to, to inflate the eye and protect the endothelial surface from damage when doing cataract. And this product was sold to us from the company by the company as being the, the best protector product because of his formulation and uh, being in the or and i saw the doctor struggling to inject it and struggling to take it out he threw it across the room and says i want you to get the hell out of here and i said i'll talk to you at the sink so then we met at the sink and he said listen you know you didn't you you, you didn't tell me the whole thing here you didn't tell me the whole story so um, uh, I learned that lesson. I said, you know you always got to be realistic, got to tell people the pros and cons of why the this product the benefits and the and the, and the challenges they're going to have, and let them make the decision based on that that way that you build trust and people trust what you say
1: But I think that probably uh, made you think right to go through an experience like that where um a customer that you've probably known for quite some time has a strong negative reaction to the product you've brought to them. Um, I can imagine knowing you a long time, Paul, that you took that very seriously. And I know from the, the interactions I've had with your team over the years that you guys have done a great job of protecting the integrity of the name Laptition, that you will not compromise and bring in uh, products that don't perform at the highest possible level. Now that makes the selection process that more rigorous and difficult, but has it paid dividends, Paul, over the long term?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, you when you look at um, when you look at product, and say one, well, as I mentioned, you, you want to solve a problem, um, but the other thing that's important is, will you be able to change a physician's behavior? and I, I mentioned this to our sales force our time we're not in a business of selling we're in the business of changing behavior and that takes time and uh the better educated your sales force is the more you would be able to represent the benefits and allow the doctor to smoothly transition and change the behavior so uh, the answer is yes and that's kind of the approach we've taken and and it's it's paid dividends for us
1: one of the things that i'm sure we both experienced in the In the time that we've had in the work environment, which is kind of a, we're like people have said about us, and we've said this to each other. We're like mother brothers from different mothers. We grew up about the same time. We're about the same age. We entered the corporate life about the same time. And then I had about a twenty-year time in corporate, and now almost twenty years for you and at the helm of Labtition. And of course, we're celebrating our twentieth anniversary, which is why we're having this podcast. But would you say that it's also been your experience that what you thought you knew about business when you were in corporate uh, became much sharper in terms of its understanding and application once you owned your own shop? Like I've had this conversation with someone just the other day, and I would say that I'm, it's tested me far more having my own business than being paid fairly well to be in the pharmaceutical industry and learning on the go. You know, both of us have the right of education to come in to the business world, but it only really got us in the door, and then it was just a, such a steep learning curve. And luckily, Allergan was a great training ground. It was one of the best in the, at the time in the 80s and 90s to be able to build our skills and learn f- from being in the business world and in the life science sector. But man, it was taken to a whole, whole different level when it was our money on the table. and It was our business. It, I don't know about you, but it it really it was like getting a, an MBA without going for the MBA. Like as soon as I got into my own ownership structure and started trying to build it as an entrepreneur, I I couldn't make mistakes because it wasn't on somebody else's dime. It was on mine. <laughs> so if I made mistakes, I had to learn quickly. Would you say the same Paul? That oh, when for sure. on and Ray got started. It really sharpened your saw in a hurry.
0: For sure. I mean, the very first thing you find out is you don't have a safety net. And, um, you know, you are, by and large, you know, in, in the large companies, you, you'll be responsible for a P&L, but you're not responsible for cash flow. You're not responsible for a balance sheet and your inventory levels, your payables, your receivables. So you put all that in the mix and it really changes your perspective. Um, the, the, the biggest thing that I learned is that um, every decision you make impacts every single person in the organization. Right. And and it's very, very critical to have a vision, share it, promote it, and inspire others to want to achieve it. And that was, you know, I don't think I was a very good leader until I actually left corporate and came to, the, you know, laptition. You you realize how impactful everything you say, everything that comes out of your mouth, more importantly, every behavior exhibit. It's right. it's it's huge, right? And uh, uh Allergan, as you said, was I'm I'm very, so very grateful for my experiences there. I've had great people to work with. It was a, a, a company based on eight players, always challenging each other. But it's still not the same as running your own shop, as you have just said. Paul, well, what
1: would you say was the hardest lesson you had and have taken now with you as you've gone forward with Laptition, but where did you stub your toe <clears throat> the hardest as you got started?
0: Um, a very hard lesson to learn is um you know when you're struggling to make payments and thinking about you know your responsibility to x number of families, so it's not only the employees but it's also their families, their kids, their spouses, and how they're dependent on you for their livelihood um that that the decisions there are very critical and so what you try to do is you try to chase every squirrel right you try to okay there's an opportunity here opportunity there opportunity here opportunity there and then you end up accomplishing nothing right and so a big lesson for me was as hard as it is you got to focus on one thing or two things and bring them to fruition before going and after something else and as we we built the organization um you, you you just have to ensure that each person has one or two things to do and so you can achieve multiple things but everybody's focused they wake up they go to sleep they think about that one or one or two things and that was a very important lesson for me because other than that before that we were chasing every opportunity thinking that we're gonna get one and and so on and so forth and but the real lesson is you only achieve that once you prioritize yeah now the opposite side of that
1: Coin. The question is, what are you most proud of?
0: Um, well, in business, you're you're saying right? Yeah.
1: Since you, and Cleon and Ray, dove into the deep end of the pool,
0: <laughs> yeah, took the, big,
1: I, took the big gamble. What's the payoff? What when you sit back over a a nice glass of wine and a some celebrative sort of mindset? What? What makes you sort of smile the most?
0: You know, it, it comes back to uh, the question is saying, do you feel you've been successful, right? Right. And um, it really that de- de- depends on the definition of success. You know, sometimes it's, for some people, it's money. It's money. Others, it's power, position of power. For me, when I look back, I say, you know what? My what I feel my success is is being in a position to control the achievement of my vision and goals, right? Yeah, um, I'm very cognizant that we're all open systems and you can't control all the variables, but I'm very proud of the fact that we, I've been able to do that, manage my family, you know, do right by my friends, do right by, um, you know, our parents, uh, my teammates. That is when I look back and I'm, I'm most proud of that because I've been able to balance these off all. all under my, you know, live and die with my choices and decisions. So that's probably the, the the number one thing I would say is is I'm proud of. Yeah, that's a big deal, Paul. Because uh,
1: there you were in your early 40s, uh, as you say, you were you were transitioning not only back to Canada but uh, operating as a single dad. You put all your <laughs> financial chips on the table with a couple of partners. Man, I'll tell you, yeah, not only no safety net, but, you know, it was all on the table. It wasn't just a couple of things. It was, you you, you bet on yourself big time. And your, of course, your brother and Ray and other people that I'm sure you knew that were going to be valuable to you as you went forward, all those folks that you tapped into from ophthalmic days. And so you had a little bit of an army there behind you to help you out, but you had to be the general in the front lines there's no question about it um and you led from the front at the very beginning and gradually moved to you know i would say being parallel with your team and then gradually again moved into more of the executive role but the nature of being an entrepreneur is you got you got to have your chin out there at the front front of the pack for if you want to if you want to do it
0: right right so yeah and and, you know earlier on you asked about uh what are the things that uh uh, that that, you know the the customers you knew the customers how did you turn that into business yeah Um, you know i was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago uh i think it's uh fortunes leadership insights or i can't remember the exact name of it but um they were interviewing the starbucks ceo laxman in and you know, they were talking about Starbucks. They're they're in the business of nurturing human connection. And, you know, I, I had to really chew on that for a while because really at the end of the day, it's all about people. And I've always believed that. And, uh, you know, you never compromise your values when you're dealing in relationships. And that human connection, that uh, sharing of values and sharing of, of experiences growing together as, as much as it sounds like mother and apple pie, I feed on that. And I have a lot more to learn than I can, I can give out. And so I'm always humbled by other people and their experiences. And I really try to learn from everybody I meet all the time. And I think that's a really important aspect of my life is that I don't know everything. I want to listen twice as much as I speak. And absorb as much as I can, because I have this natural curiosity that I, I never know enough.
1: Yeah, and I wonder now, uh, Paul, if you were able to take the wisdom you've gained over the past almost 20 years of being at the helm of a laptician and you went back to corporate life through a time machine to, let's say, when you were 30, what would you have done differently if, if I gave you that opportunity?
0: Well, I wasn't a good manager or a leader at first. Um, You know, I was uh, uh, very tactical. Put your head down and work hard and things will happen. Uh, I would, when looking back, I'd say, okay, take a little bit more time to sit back and think. And, you know, assess what the problem is. Ask people a lot of questions to really pinpoint what the issue is. Because a lot of times we deal with issues in business. But, you know, we try to solve and make decisions on only partial information, but not really getting to the issue. I would say, sit back, listen, identify the issue, and then prioritize how you're going to tackle it. Mm, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I I share that. I think that there may be a lot of people who, who get to the end of the corporate run would also share that too, right? That. 15, 20, 25, 30 years, it doesn't matter what the time frame is. And a number of other guests have made this comment too. I think they've learned to ask smarter questions and to gather more intelligence before making the strategy and tactical decisions. So yeah, that seems to be a common takeaway from many years of experience, especially the how hot the iron is when the business is yours and it's your PL, it's your cash flow. You know, the the lessons don't get lost. <laughs> you know, when you make no. a mistake, you don't miss it. And when you do something right, you don't miss it.
0: Well, and it, it, you know, to that, that point, when you asked me about stubbing toe, I can think of some things we, we took on. Um, we had a vision for it, it seemed like a real reasonable value proposition. Um, and then you find out either A, the market's not ready for it, or B, you didn't really formulate the plan well enough because you didn't ask enough questions and yes you're right every time you do that it hurts your pocketbook you know and it it hurts it hurts the security of the company which then translates to hurts the security of the people working there which then relates back to the 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 weight of responsibility you have to have for your team, So and, dumb- when you
1: own, and when you own a business, Paul, like you and Cleon and Ray do, that has a number of employees, the stakes are way different than those of us who stay in professional service practices like I did, that don't have a whole bunch of people that are on the payroll. Uh, we've done a strategic partnership model, as you know. So it does impact our partners and their families, but it doesn't impact 20 people and their husbands and wives and kids like it did for you guys. Um, It must make it a little bit more stressful. And I know that there's a number of people. In fact, I talk to people at least a couple of people every month now for 20 years who get, get into a situation in their corporate life where they're playing with the idea at least of, well, what if I got off the corporate ladder and went into my own business, whatever that might be, what would you say would be the, important aspects of that decision for folks that are considering something entrepreneurial and getting out of corporate. What, uh, what guidance do you find yourself Paul giving to people who reach out to you?
0: That's a, that's a tough one because I do get asked that a lot. And um, you know, it's just like when you sit with a financial advisor and they try to assess your, your risk tolerance, right? Um, I have a higher the normal risk tolerance, but as my runway shortens with age, um, your risk tolerance tends to decline somewhat. So yeah. I would say number one is is being comfortable with the risk tolerance. Number two is, if are you ready to bet on yourself, and that has multiple layers. The one of them is, have you learned everything you can from the corporate world? Number one. Number two. Are you a are you satisfied with your leadership skills? Are you are you able to inspire others to follow you? And that is a big deal, because if you don't, if you don't, you'll never be able to build a business. And I think those are those are two things I tell people all the time. And number three, do you have a little bit of a cushion, you know, because it's going to take you much longer than what you think? It's going to take you much longer. And the pace of change. Somebody once told me it's never as fast as you want it to be. So just like when you build a house, you know, you know there's two things you're always got to do is put 35% more money in the bank. Cause you know, it's going to cost you more and allow for 35% more time than they actually told you it was going to take. Yeah. yeah. Is, so to me, that's a pretty powerful statement.
1: I, I love that because I remember when I was just a young guy in university, <laughs> trying to pay my, pay my bills, pay my tuition expenses. I got a job from one summer in Ottawa doing uh, residential exterior painting. And my one of my dad's older brothers was still around, Uncle Percy, and he was visiting up at my mom and dad's, and I was there for the weekend. And I was telling him what, what I was doing. That's what his profession was. He was a professional painter. And he said, so have you learned the painter's trick yet? I said, well, no, what's that? He goes, you do your best estimate, turn the paper, paper over and multiply it by two. Mm-hmm. And, well, what's the point of doing your best estimate? And he goes, trust me, it always turns out that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
0: like when people ask me about divorce. I don't know why all of a sudden I become an authority on it, but a lot of people come to me and say, well, you've been through it. How do you, how do you do it? I said, well, it's very simple. You take your, you take your assets, divide them by two. If you're happy with that number and you're not, and you're unhappy, then get a divorce. If you're not, then figure out a way to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you're so right, Paul. About I think the key
1: separator for the question whether sh- somebody should do their own thing, have their own business, it's not about the skill set so much as the risk orientation. I've had countless people reach out to me from the learning and development field, for instance, and training fields, and and, and say, "Well, you did it, Rob, and you know you've been at it for a few years. So, you know, do you think I could do it?" and you know, I'll know people fairly well who maybe I've interacted with them. They've been a client or gotten to know them through a vendor relationship of some sort. And I remember one guy in particular that I was speaking to, and he he had all of the technical skills. He could create the intellectual property. He could sell, which was unusual because a lot of training and development people aren't necessarily gifted at the selling component, right? That's probably one of the biggest, Separators from a skill perspective, he could actually sell his ideas. Um, but I, I think that the turning point question was: Do you have? And it's not something you can develop. I think it's innate. Do you have the risk orientation to to move forward, and can you walk the tightrope and not look down and fall off? Because if you can't, don't do it. It to me, it's it's by far the most important indi- indicator or predictor of success as a business owner is. Can you handle the risk? And if you're not wired that way, why would you put yourself through the stress if you're someone who doesn't have that almost cowboyish mentality, which, listen, I think it's good that you and I both have business and life partners that give us a little bit of that offset, a little bit of that more conservative approach. And I, I used to see this when I was doing practice management in the States, the best partnerships at that level in large ophthalmic practices were When you had partners, some were optimist, glass half full, risk-oriented, foot on the gas pedal, and some were sober second thought, conservative, analytical people. And they were great partners. They almost always had the best practices. Too much of one was dangerous because it put you in the ditch for one reason, and too much of the other was you never moved forward. So, But I do think most people... At the end of the day, if they've got all the skills that they've wanted to develop in their corporate life, and there's not much more for them to learn. I always get them to pause to make sure that they've thought through their risk orientation. What happens if you're now digging into your personal savings to get through a recession? Or if your biggest client leaves? I had my top three clients five years into my business leave all in the same week. <laughs> so 80% of my business disappeared in four days. Mm-hmm. And Man, if you'd asked me then, or, or a couple of years before, could I handle that? I'm not sure. My answer would have been yes, but I found a way, and I'm. It really challenged my faith in myself. And I, you know, for me personally, Paul and you and I have this in common. My faith in God at that point it was like, are you, are you trying to tell me something? Like, do you want me to leave having my own business because this week sucks? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah i think that is a question our listeners who are considering their own business whatever that play is whether it's in something like you've done where you're bringing technology into a market like canada or you're want to do a personal in a professional service practice like an ad agency or market research or consulting or learning and development all of those questions about skills and abilities as a leader are fundamentally important can you build value can you sell it can you deliver on it can you run the business all of those competencies yeah they're important but at the end of the day can you handle the obvious ups and downs of uh, the business cycle right Whatever, every eight to ten years we're going to go through a recession and there's maybe one coming now so if your cash flow gets tight can you manage the stress of that and have you got the financial backing to get through it yeah that's the stuff i think is the most important in my experience. And it sounds like you concur with that.
0: I do. And you know, you you really uh, you really learn a lot about yourself in the whole process here. As 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 good as you may think you are in certain areas, you're going to get challenged. And you know, for, for me it's always been about keeping an open mind that that my way is not the only way. And I thought, you know, at the beginning when we started the, the business, one of the one of the things we did, which I think in, in retrospect was a really good decision, is you start your business and you start drinking your own Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Oh, yeah, this is a great product or this is a great process or whatever you think is great. We, we formed a board of advisors because we didn't want to have board of directors with liabilities and all that kind of stuff. But a yeah. board of advisors and the purpose of that was that they would challenge our thinking. Because if you start drinking your own Kool-Aid, it's it, it's not good, actually. Uh so having third party saying to you no, this is not right. Have you considered this have you considered X and Y and Z, uh, that did a uh that had more value than we ever would have anticipated.
1: Yeah, I remember learning that from you, Paul. I remember you and I both got that advice as we were setting up our businesses from a couple of people, Sheldon being one, one person who made that comment to both of us. But I watched you guys go through that and then I did the same thing about the same time, but just after having watched the benefit, you were driving from it and got a few people to sit with me and we had dinner and I know you gave me some advice along the way that was very helpful, but in particular, our the turning point for our practice, I would say around 2011, 12 came from uh, spending some money on some external consulting and bringing uh now one of my business partners, John, into the room and having him and a couple other people push from the outside, ask the right questions about our vision and strategy, challenge some of our assumptions, and it it made for a very important turning point in our practice and put us on a much better uh, path forward. I, I I couldn't agree more that, and I've encouraged people to to do that exact thing in the last little while. I've had a couple of those conversations that. Even if you get off to a good start in your business, that's something that you'll miss from corporate life, the other voices, because to your point, you start getting in in your own head (laughs) and that's, it's not always a great place to be.
0: Well, and the other part, I I remember you and I had this conversation. I got, I got to a point where um, I wasn't learning. I I felt like, uh, you know, I, I go to the office every day. You know, I have conversations with people, but I wasn't being challenged. So this is where I, I sought, you know, counsel. I said, look, how can I gain some of this? How can I gain the continuous thinking? And that's when I joined a, a group. And that has really helped me as well, particularly through COVID. COVID was a real, as for everybody, was a real challenging time. And that's a time where you have to, you challenge your thinking of empathy. You know, you challenge your, you know, you're your thinking about to manage people through crisis and without having had that that um, support network it would have been a lot more difficult i think we would have lost a lot more people in the process yeah that
1: peer-to-peer counseling and i don't think it matters whether you join a tech group or uh, an owner's forum or you have a coach or all the above I, i couldn't agree more i think those types of peer resources where you can bounce ideas and troubles and questions off folks and not feel like, uh, I can't be vulnerable, you know, with my partners or with my wife or, but I could be vulnerable with guys like you, Paul, that was helpful to me. And I think you found the same thing, right? When you had those peer to peer conversations where you could really be vulnerable and, and, and just ask for help and, and then benefit from the council that came back from that
0: vulnerability. 100 percent. And you and I have had these conversations in the past. And one of the things I found with with the group I I was part of is that, you know, you had people who ran billion dollar companies and then you had companies that, you know, small on the scale like like ours. Um, And but what I found common amongst all these leaders, which was very inspiring to me, was they have a high, they're very high on the empathy scale they have a high self-awareness and have a continual thirst for knowledge and those three things uh, just continually inspire me so you know people say why do you why do you keep going to these it takes a time commitment that year and you know what why the reason simple is it allows you to sit back and reflect and what i've also found that in business it doesn't matter what business you're in it's always the same challenges you know there's a there's, you know, financial challenges, there's people challenges, you know, the market challenges, there's always the same challenges. The question is, why try to recreate the wheel when other people have gone through it? Yeah, take, take their skill, take their knowledge and and run with it.
1: Yeah, I've really benefited from, there's a group called Leader Impact that was started by uh, Paul Henderson, who is, of course, famous to Canadians as having scored the winning goal in the 1972 Canada Russia series. Well, I guess Paul came back from his uh, hockey travels and towards the end of his career, became a born again Christian and decided to start a movement within the professional sports realm. And then after he left hockey, um, a number of people came to him and sort of requested that he help them. And I guess in the nineties in particular, he discovered an appetite for this in, in the business community. So, He started this group called Leader Impact, where at that time, uh, men could get together and, like you say, have a peer-to-peer discussion, particularly business owners, and be able to talk about every aspect of life, their business, their faith, the family challenges in a safe, supportive environment. A friend of mine that I was coaching, his son in baseball, came to me and offered me an opportunity to join his group, I want to say probably 2010, 11, in that time frame and uh it really i've stayed with it since in fact i've started my own group during covid like you say when it was really helpful and every friday morning it's that's a that's a phone call or a zoom call i never miss like you know me i'm not a morning person i get up for maybe baseball fishing maybe church <laughs> and maybe this guys group and maybe this podcast interview but not much else gets me up at 6:30 in the morning and i never miss those because to your point the benefit I get from uh, other business owners and 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 young and older men just talking about their experience in all aspects of life is so helpful. And I'm really pleased to see that that group went through a tremendous growth. There's now a group for uh, women leaders in, in business and in community. They have gr- groups that have spun off and it's, it's actually growing exp- exponentially. And then they started a young person's uh, group a few years ago and apparently it's going through growth and now they're in like 70 countries around the world which is kind of funny to to think about something that was started by a hockey player in Canada but it struck a chord because this new breed of young entrepreneurs and young leaders they don't really have the forums that we used to have especially because of COVID of course but even post-COVID I find we were kind of lucky, I think, Paul, our generation benefited from a lot of great mentors, especially in our corporate lives and and our older brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and parents. It just seems like the next generation of young entrepreneurs, I think it has an even greater need for peer-to-peer and mentorship and encouragement and coaching. I don't know if you see the same thing in your travels.
0: I, I, I certainly do. And I think one of the... Uh... One of the things I notice about the up-and-coming generations is they don't have high visibility to failure. So if you think of social media, social media, people only post the good things. They never post the bad things. Right. You know, when I was growing up, you know, one of my, one of my big influences was my, my grandfather. He was, um, he was a refugee in the 1920s during the Greco-Turkish wars. He, uh, he ended up, uh, you know, making it to a, the island of Samos and from the island of Samos to Egypt. He built a life for himself there and then they were exiled from, from there and ended up in Greece and then left Greece again to come to Canada. So here's the person who, you know, gained, you know, prominence in, you know, society through his efforts and hard work and insights and values and then and lost everything. And uh, those are stories I grew up hearing. And, you know, I personally have gone through a lot of, failures but it seems like today nobody talks about their failures and you know in every good business book any any self-help book they always say learn from your failures so yeah resilience hey paul exactly exactly and and this is what i try to get across to my kids is to say you know nothing is ever as good as it seems and nothing's ever as bad as it seems it's somewhere in the middle and you got to be stable and and focused through it but you are going to fail and that's okay
1: yeah, and it's funny because when you talk to uh, people and ask them, tell me about your best employees, <laughs> it's funny how often they hear themselves talking about resilience as the defining quality of their best employees. Not how sure. smart those employees are, but just how tough they are to pick themselves up more often than they get knocked down. And I know that you know it's something that books are being written about. I heard a podcast about this not that long ago about hiring for grit and determination. Well, mm-hmm. to your point, it was easier, I think, in a sort of paradoxical way for our generation to learn to be resilient because we were the kids and grandkids of the greatest generations that went through the First and Second World War and the upheaval. And, you know, you know that I uh, do a lot of work with teams and on both sides of the border, Canada, U.S., and one of the most fun exercises that I get to do at least a couple times a month is I ask people to tell me about someone in their life that is their biggest inspiration to this point. I've been asking that question now for at least 10 years, <laughs> a couple times a month. Uh-huh. And I can't tell you, Paul, how, much, how often I hear the immigrant story, You know, not, not just first or second generation, but third generation, people go back and appreciate how a grandparent, a parent, or they sacrificed everything to get to, to Canada or the U.S. and start a new life for themselves. And the lesson is the determination, the courage, and the resilience. And they try to keep that as a core value going forward. But it's harder. That's the paradox. It's harder when you've got a generation of affluence, particularly North America, post-war now, two generations, three generations later, I find I have to work hard with my kids, and I'm sure I'll do this if I'm blessed to have grandchildren, to remind them where they came from. Because like your grandfather, my mom came from the war, came to Halifax with one set of clothes and no money, didn't know if her family was still alive after the war. And she was our role model for resilience. My dad was very resilient, too, because he came from a very poor family from Northern Ontario and with nothing. But but all the people I, I speak to about their influences will will remember folks like that from their personal lives. And it's, it's the difficulty of raising children in an affluent society. It's, it's not that it, it's not everything is handed to them. I, I know that we all try to provide opportunity and challenge for our kids to, to, to learn from their own experiences, their own mistakes. But it's hard to replicate that resilience that came from the people whose shoulders we stand on, right?
0: You know, and that's a great point. I mean, I often tell my kids, I said, you know, you guys are living my lifestyle, not the one you've created. And I often tell them that, you know, we we came from, you know, I remember how I grew up and uh and just like listening to uh, your your other guest, Bill, um, who when I listened to the podcast said, wow, that's exactly how I was brought up. Is we didn't have anything. And so, you know, working your way to getting something is one thing, but having everything and losing it is a whole other game. Yep. And and what we try to do is is uh, try to prevent that loss happening to our kids. You know, and I tell them the, the analogy I use is look, when you're you know when you're in a tub of hot water, you sit there, the temperature may not have changed, but you start feeling cooler. So you end up adding more hot water, right? So um, at what point do you say, "Okay, enough's enough," and let me just make sure that I continue to grow and try to prevent, uh, you know, that decline that could happen for whatever reason, right? I mean, COVID did that to a lot of families, a lot of businesses, yeah, and, uh, and you know, very, very sad, very sad that it happened. It was funny. I when you mentioned COVID,
1: I only saw one person who seemed quite positive about the fact that we had lived through COVID for a couple of years. It was Neil Young. Um, there was some interview on television and someone stuck a microphone in his face. And he looked genuinely enthusiastic about the fact that the whole world had been through a crisis together and how much we, we've all learned to come together as, a, as brothers and sisters. And I thought, well, I don't know what you're smoking, Neil, but okay. But I listened carefully to what he was saying. And it was one of the, well, I guess maybe the only silver lining of having a year and a half to two years of being shut in our houses is that we learn that, hey, we're all just brothers and sisters on the same little ball spinning around the universe and this sucks and we'll get through it together but it was an interesting point <laughs> but it is that it is that generational dilemma, right, Paul, that we see here uh, in 2023 is now, you know, 75 years after the end of the Second World War it's 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 reminding our, our our kids and the next wave of kids and the young leaders that were around that remember the shoulders you're standing on and and try to pick up and take those lessons forward with you. Don't leave them behind. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Well, as we uh, wind down our interview here this morning, I, I, I with every guest we offer the opportunity to bring up a topic we haven't talked about, Paul. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't been able to get to yet?
0: Well, I think, um, uh, let me think about that. You know, one of the things you and I share um, is is humor, right? And um, I, I love humor. I think it diffuses difficult situations, takes tension out, allows room for creativity. You know, I often poke fun of myself, so I don't take myself too seriously. And I, I, I truly am humbled by a lot, a lot of people. Um, just the the use of humor is not a sign of weakness, but rather it's a it's a methodology for allowing people to speak their mind. And I think when you allow that and allow for diverse opinions, you actually end up with a better result. So I know you and I have talked about that, and that's why I bring it up, is that it's so critical in day-to-day life just to be able to laugh and, and see humor in things because that helps you cope, helps the resilience that you talked about, helps in your creativity, helps in your interaction with people. Um, I, th- I think it just gives you more, a more fulfilled life.
1: Yeah, it's funny you say that because as I sit here having this podcast interview with you, right above, um, I've got a, a few things on my wall. One of them is an old fa- fashioned clock, a picture of my challenger softball team that Chris and I work with, uh, a crucifix, and then above that is the word laugh. And mm-hmm. uh, I look at it every once in a while, remind myself to have a laugh because, to your point, right? <laughs> Why are we doing all this if not to have fun and enjoy uh, having our own businesses or uh, coaching a softball team or whatever it might be? And I, I really enjoy people who like to have a laugh, you know, whether it's a laugh at a memory, a funny story, something that we see together or experience together. Laugh at themselves, I think, to your point, is probably one of the most endearing qualities. It shows the vulnerability that, as a leader, I think is so important because it says to people, hey, I can get real with Paul. I can can, um, enjoy his company as a brother, not just as my boss type of thing.
0: And, you know, when you when you look at the news, you read the news, there is never anything good on the news. I mean, you know, so at the end of that, you're always a little bit depressed and you say, well, let me, what's, what can I find in there? Well, you know, where's the humor? Um, and let, let's see that if we can learn, cope, cope with that, because it, it really is stressful day to day with the amount of information we're bombarded with daily. Very few good news stories. And this is where I commend you in taking this initiative on your 20th, uh, Rob, is that, you know, the cast of characters and people you've, you've been interviewing for your podcast is, is very impressive. And, you know, it just talks about the impact that you've had on so many people. And when you talk about human interaction, I think you're you're right at the pinnacle there. You're right at the helm, uh, living what you talk about. And, you know, uh, I, I really congratulate you because you've had a great impact on people. And If you got a legacy to leave behind, these podcasts will certainly be one of them.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Paul. It's been a blessing to me to think back now. Boy, if you'd said to me 20 years ago when I made the jump myself from the corporate ladder to the walking the tightrope of my own business, that one of the benefits would be this sort of thing. I I might not have believed you. I, I would have hoped that you were telling me the truth because, you know, I... I say that when I come back from business trips, and Chris will ask me, know, how was your trip and I don't talk about the the math so much as the people mm-hmm. like I'll tell her a story about someone I met, maybe someone who answered that question you'll know, tell me about your greatest inspiration, and we'll just sit you know over a cup of tea and I hear myself, That's my harvest, paul you know to your point there a second ago uh the the thing I enjoy most about. Thrive Partnership Group is the great people I get to meet and the fact that I hope that I can have a little bit to do with moving them to their next level of proficiency and being a little bit of a catalyst, the right ingredient at the right time that showed up to encourage them to to be the bigger version of themselves. And if I suppose if that's the legacy of my business at the end of the day, I'm I'm very happy with that.
0: Yeah, and I remember you and I had this conversation once about You know, sometimes you get called in when uh, they say, you know what, I want you to round out the corners of this rough diamond here, Um, you know, and and they look at the, the opportunity for the individuals to grow. But you and I had this conversation saying, you know, most people don't start off their day thinking I will try not to do a good job. Right. 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 Most people, most people get up and say, you know, I'd like to do a great job. Sometimes they don't have the skills or they don't have the awareness, or whatever, and that's where kind of you come in to kind of assist in that in that journey, right? And uh, again, I think that's the legacy you will definitely be behind.
1: Well, thanks for joining us here this morning, Paul. I really uh, was looking forward to this conversation because quite a number of people who I interact with, particularly post-COVID, I think COVID made everyone think about their lot in life and what they want to do next. And, you know, there was what they call the great resignation over 35% of North American workers changed jobs and many of them chose to go into their own businesses. And so there's still that very voracious appetite out there in the business community. And I think those conversations have increased in their frequency of late. And I think what you shared with us and our listeners this morning is so important to the decisions people are making about their future and their work. And for some people, I hope they are encouraged to go do their own thing. And for some people, I hope it gave them at least sober second thought to think it through. So really appreciate your contributions
0: to our podcast, Paul, and hope to talk to you very soon. And thank you very much as well, Rob. I, You know, we've had many, many interactions over time. I look forward to many, many more. Congratulations on your 20th. And uh, I hope that you will continue to provide uh, Council and people's journey and should be very proud of that. Thanks, Paul. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. Good talk. Take care, you. brother. Thank yeah. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.